at the, the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. The huge thing is that the gospel is now going out to non-Jews. And so as a result, God's covenant people are expanding very, very broadly. And so fast forward that 2,000 years, it's because of that that people like us have been adopted into God's family. So what we just saw as a baptism of an adopted child says a lot about our adoption into God's family. So consider that as we listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, as we prepare to come underneath Your Word this morning, underneath the teaching and the preaching of it, our prayer is that You would be with us. Our prayer is that You Yourself would speak to Your people. Uh, that you would speak to us. Though we gather together, we all come through the doors this morning uh, differently. Some of us come and we, we came this morning afraid. We came this morning full of doubts. Others came excited, uh, glad to be with your people. Others came perhaps too comfortable, uh, grown so comfortable in this life that we've failed to recognize our deep dependence upon you for even every breath that we breathe. Father, we come with our sin. We come with our brokenness. We come with our wrong thoughts of ourselves and of you and of others. And we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us each individually and remind us that even though we're all different, even though we may have all come through these doors differently this morning, that we really are all the same. The symptoms differ, but the disease is the same, because we are all far more broken, more sinful, more fallen than we could ever imagine. And so our prayer this morning as we gather underneath your word is that you would reveal to us Jesus, 
and remind us that though we are far more broken than we could imagine, because of Jesus, His person and work, we are also far more loved and far more secure, far more accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream. Father, we pray that you would take us this morning to Jesus, for it's in His name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And at this time, the children, uh, ages 3 to 1st grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, somebody there will take you to your class this morning. Galatians chapter 2. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Uh, many of you remember those words spoken by Martin Luther King Jr. from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, um, and they were powerful words. They were pow- very powerful words, um, but they were also incredibly sad words as well. Free, but at last, at last, you know, a hundred years after freedom had been proclaimed to African Americans was Martin Luther King proclaiming freedom at last, a hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, listen, that Martin Luther King would need to lead a movement and have to fight for freedom should be very instructive to us this morning. Um, There is a difference between the proclamation of freedom and the experience and the actual possession of freedom and liberty. Listen, I, I realize that initially, initially nothing seems further removed from us this morning than a first century debate over circumcision in the Middle East. Um, but I hope to show you this morning that it means everything to us. Galatian Christians, they were losing their grip. They were losing their grip on the actual liberty and the radical freedom that they had in the gospel. False teachers came in and they said, what Paul told you about Jesus is is fine and everything, but he didn't give you the whole picture. It's not quite enough. He really watered it down for you. You need to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also need to be circumcised and you need to keep all of these laws. And only by doing these things can you know that you're really a Christian. Only by doing all these things added to Jesus? Can you be assured of God's love for you, be assured of his acceptance for you? And Paul went to Jerusalem to wage war. He went to Jerusalem to fight for the freedom of the gospel. Listen, the moment you add one little thing to Jesus as a condition for God's love and acceptance and approval of you, you have lost the gospel entirely, and you've entered again into slavery. And it's a struggle, and it's not easy, and it's difficult, and it's a hard fight. One of the main points of Galatians, as we go through this book together, is to say that if you assume you know and understand the gospel, it's pretty clear you don't. But on the other hand, if you realize that you don't really know and don't really understand the gospel, you're probably just now starting to get it. And that might sound very strange to you, very weird to you, but think about what you read in Galatians chapter 2. Paul went to Jerusalem, and he sat down with Peter, James, 
and John for a discussion about gospel freedom. Those four men, think about those four men. It's generally agreed that Luke got the information for his gospel and the book of Acts from Paul. And that Mark got his information for his gospel from the apostle Peter. So when you take these four men together, that means that the entire New Testament, except for the book of Matthew and Hebrews, was represented in that discussion. And it's 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they were wrestling and struggling and working to come to grips with understanding and applying the gospel in their day. Most of you know that I'm, I'm very sympathetic to those who are skeptical and doubtful of the gospel. Um, and I really do love and appreciate good, hard, honest questions. But listen, lazy, skepti- lazy skepticism that assumes to already know the gospel, and those who claim to Christians who make the same kind of assumptions, you aren't being honest with yourself, and you aren't being honest with this gospel. As we continue in this this series in Galatians, my encouragement to you is to do the real hard work of honesty as we deal with what Paul has to say here. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. Martin Luther King He took those words from an old spiritual hymn, and it was entirely appropriate because it was a hymn about the real, objective, but also tangible and experiential freedom that we have in Jesus. Add one little thing to Jesus, and you lose this gospel entirely, is what Paul is saying. And when you lose the gospel, you have lost all freedom. You have lost all peace. You have lost all power. You have lost all love in your life. So Galatians 2, 1 through 10, it is, it's a description of Paul's fight for freedom. And I want us to understand this morning the opposition to the agreement in and the participation of gospel freedom. So those are my three points. Gospel freedom opposition, gospel freedom agreement, and gospel freedom partnership. Here we go. First, gospel freedom opposition. There is real opposition to the gospel of grace. Real opposition to the freedom and liberty of the gospel. And where? Where do you find that opposition? Where do you need to be prepared to fight for the freedom of the gospel? In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul mentioned some who trouble you. And in chapter 2, verse 4, He labeled that group false brothers. Listen to me. The opposition to gospel freedom came from inside the very community that was proclaiming gospel freedom from within the church. Be realistic about these false brothers. They didn't show up in Galatia and say, hey, we're false brothers. Um, and we are seeking to distort the gospel and lead you back into slavery. That's not how they came. They would have thought of themselves as true brothers. They thought they were in the right for doing this. What Paul told you about Jesus was great, but not quite enough. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep these laws. Where do you need to be on guard and prepared to fight for gospel freedom? Sadly, you need to be prepared for it in this room. In this room, because I get it, you have friends and I have friends who look at the church and they say, that's the farthest thing from freedom 
that I can possibly imagine. That's the one place I can't be real and vulnerable. That's the one place I can't share my weakness. That's the one place I can't have my questions and my struggles on display. And I'm telling you, that charge is not entirely off base. That may, in fact, be your thought today. And I would say to you, I'm sorry. That I'm sorry for those who made you feel that you had to measure up. And that you had to get your act together and clean up your mess before you could know that God absolutely, completely, and perfectly loves you and accepts you in Jesus. But the fault isn't the message. That's Paul's big point in Galatians. The fault may lie with the messengers, but not with the message. And let's ask this question, why? Why would anyone be opposed to gospel freedom? And especially, why would that opposition rise up from the very community that is proclaiming gospel freedom? Paul says in verse 4 that they were secretly brought in, and they slipped in to spy out our freedom in Christ. In verse 3, they wanted to force Titus to be circumcised. And we say, I mean, no one would be against freedom, would they? I, I can't get into it fully, but that question shows how very little we understand about our own human nature. True freedom is scary. True freedom. True freedom is threatening and dangerous. You consider every revolution that has ever happened in the world, that the world has ever seen. When people rise up for freedom, it is scary and it is threatening, and those in power seek to crush it and crack down with the law to stop it. You might even say about these false brothers that they had good intentions. And that's fine if you want to say that. But to borrow a title from a great little book, they were well-intentioned dragons. They just wanted to preserve the tradition. Make sure this gospel freedom didn't turn into licentiousness. They wanted to put up some guardrails to make sure people were sincere, to make sure they were really committed. And Paul saw it all as pure poison. Gospel cyanide. Maybe it's just one little drop of cyanide in a glass of water. Okay, but that's all that's needed. One drop to contaminate the whole glass of water and to take a drink of it would be deadly. Add one little thing, one little rule, one little guideline to keep freedom in check, and you've turned freedom into slavery. This is my longest point this morning, so just give me a few more minutes. I went home to Baton Rouge, uh, my home down in Baton Rouge, for a few days after Christmas. And this gets me every time I go home. My grandfather lives with my parents now. He's 94 years old, and he suffers terrible dementia. And so, you know, I, I come in the house and I say, hey, Papa. That's, that's what we call him. Um, say, hey, Papa. And he, say, he says, who are you? And uh, I say, I'm Nathan. And, uh, and then my mom or my dad who's standing by me interjects and they say, this is Nathan. This is your grandson. And then he asks my mom or dad, well, who are you? You know, um, he doesn't know. My mom's father, right? And, um, you know, 30 seconds later, I walk by him again and he says, hey, who are you? <laughs> um, and we laugh about it because, you know, the reality is just too heartbreaking, I think. Um, but the saddest, I think, is when he's sitting at the table and he's asking questions about himself. And he's saying, who am I? What's my name? 
where am I? What day is it? Um, you know, it, it, do I have a wife? Um, he asks these questions over and over. And you see him just grasping for any little hook into reality, right? He's disoriented, and he's reaching for something, anything, to just reorient him for a minute to get his bearings. He's desperately reaching and grasping for his identity. Who am I? Only when you are secure in your identity will you ever be properly oriented to yourself, to God, and to others, and even the world. Listen, let me go one step further, though. Only when your identity is freely given to you and received by grace alone are you actually free in this life. The gospel of freedom is that your identity has been given to you in Jesus, that God loves and accepts and approves of you fully, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. You are, at, you are slavishly grasping for an identity religiously. When you add to Jesus having a regular quiet time, attending Sunday school, giving 10% to the church, participating in some ministry program, you are slavishly grasping for an identity culturally when you add to Jesus voting Republican or sending your kids to a private school or a particular social cause or a demand for a particular music style in worship. Do you, do you see this? If your identity isn't received by grace alone and Jesus alone, then you have to work for it. You have to achieve it. You have to create it. We all have friends who give us some version of, I don't want to be a Christian because I want to be free. And you need to struggle and fight for the gospel so deeply in your life that you will immediately see that as what it is, an invitation to deep slavery. Why? Because everyone needs an identity to be properly oriented to themselves, to the world, and to God. Listen, if you refuse an identity that's given, refuse an identity that's received, you have to work for it. You have to achieve it on your own. I know who I am because I'm an artist. That's who I am. I I know who I am because I'm a successful parent, because I'm a success in my career, because I'm moral in my life. The Christian version or the non-Christian version of this, it is deep, deep slavery. It will feed your, your superiority complex in your life, and you will walk around saying to yourself, well, at least I'm not like those people. But it also feeds your deep insecurity in life, that you're you fail morally, you lose a job, your art is no longer appreciated, whatever it is, and you don't know who you are anymore without it. There is real gospel freedom of opposition, not just in Paul's day, but in our day. And it's because we're all addicts. And we're not so much looking for the next drink or the next hit, but we are addicted to achieving and adding to our own identity through our work, through our effort, and through our conformity. Second, hope everyone's okay. Um, Let's talk about gospel freedom agreement. This trip to Jerusalem by Paul and Barnabas and Titus, it was a big deal. At the end of verse 2, he wrote that he went in order to make sure I was running or had not run in vain. Now listen, he wasn't afraid that he didn't have the right gospel or that the other apostles had a different gospel from his. 
That wouldn't make any sense with everything he said already up to this point in this letter. So what was his fear? As one scholar writes, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening its fruitfulness. In other words, if these false brothers are allowed to continue unchecked, they're going to undermine and undo his ministry. And ultimately, it would split the church in two. There would be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Look, initially, all Christians were Jewish, right? And initially, they all stayed put in Jerusalem, right? They hadn't yet fully thought out the implications of this gospel freedom. And these false brothers, you'll see, they were able to wield a lot of pressure. And so Paul was afraid that the apostles might cave to that pressure, that they might chicken out, that their cultural biases, right, would cloud their vision. But Paul says in this section, it didn't happen, Paul wrote that in this fight, verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And in the end, they didn't force Titus to be circumcised. They made sure they added nothing to Jesus. Listen, I I think it was a theologian, uh, John Murray, who said that verse 6 of this passage is the most important phrase in all of Galatians. That they added nothing to me, Paul wrote. That is, they added nothing to Paul's message of gospel freedom in Jesus alone. And that's very interesting how he phrases it. Because he could have said, they didn't revise my message. He could have said they didn't edit my message or amend it or subtract from my message. But he carefully wrote, they added nothing. See, the issue was and wasn't circumcision. That's a very specific thing they were dealing with at that time. But the principle of not adding anything, no matter what, to Jesus was there. Look, even circumcision didn't cover it all. I mean, that was shorthand for referring to the entire Old Testament ceremonial law. There were laws about eating certain foods and what you could wear and laws about menstruation and touching dead animals and all kinds of crazy things if I told you all of them. These ceremonial laws, they were referred to as the clean laws. You had to make sure you did or didn't do the right things. You miss one thing and you wouldn't be clean and you couldn't go worship God in the temple. Miss one thing and you dare not approach a holy God. Imagine, imagine yourself being so, so very careful, paying attention all week long, paying such close, close slavish attention to every detail of your life, to obeying all the clean laws, and you made it through the week. You obeyed them all perfectly. And then you go to the temple to worship God, but when you get to the temple, do you know what happens? The priest basically says, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) You can't come in here. You've kept all these laws, but I still have to kill this animal for you. I still have to shed the blood of this sacrifice for you. Even when you had obeyed dozens and dozens and dozens of clean laws all week, it wasn't enough. You still needed death in your place to come clean before God. Do you you know why they had all these clean laws? Laws about getting clean and being circumcised and what to wear and what to do during menstruation. And then the sacrifice at the end of all that? These laws were all shouting, you need a Savior. Because you could never clean yourself up to come before God. 
What did all these apostles and Paul agree on? Jesus came. He came and he lived the life you should have lived but couldn't. He kept every law in your place, every clean law in your place. He was clean for you. He alone died the death you should have died. He was the sacrifice that brought you into God's presence. You are perfectly accepted. You are loved completely. You are thoroughly washed. Not just your sin, but your righteousness too has been atoned for in Jesus. You know, cool. So how do we, what do we Christians do about these ceremonial laws that are in the Bible? How do we honor those ceremonial laws in the Bible? By never lifting a finger to accomplish any of them. Because they pointed to Jesus, and Jesus came to fulfill every one of you, uh, every one of them for you, because he loved you. Listen, you've heard me say this stuff before, so if you're tired of it, I'm sorry about that, but I'm not tired of it. So, um, the gospel, it is the ultimate story of love that every other love story is trying to retell, recapture. Uh, Listen, every story of sacrificial love, of redeeming love, of freeing and transforming love is at best a thinly veiled shadow of this, what we're talking about right here. That poor little cinder girls can one day become Cinderella's, right? That Sleeping Beauty's death can be softened to a sleep when she is kissed by her true love. That beauty, she has to love the beast before he's transformed. She has to love him as a beast first. That frozen hard hearts are thawed only by sacrificial love. We watch a lot of Disney at my house. Um, The King of Kings, the Lord of glory, he never asked you to climb Jacob's ladder to him. He comes down that ladder to you. Everything he did in his life and his death was for you. He both fulfilled the law and bore the law's curse for you. Every other love story can only whet your appetite for this. It's a dim shadow trying to recreate and recapture the glory of this story. The famous Southern author Flannery O'Connor, she wrote, There is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. That's why you find hints and tastes of this story in all of our best stories. Your deepest hopes and dreams that you have feared were too good to be true. They are spot on. Jesus came to make you entirely clean, to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to love you even more than you dare dream possible. You know, I don't know where you are at this particular moment. Perhaps you you feel this morning maybe a wound to your pride or you see something of the attractiveness of Jesus in the gospel. And, you know, maybe even, maybe even this morning and with last week talking about Galatians, you're getting a taste of the freedom that is yours in Jesus. Let me real quickly warn you what not to do and also encourage you in what to do, if that's you. Let me warn you not to say to yourself, I've got to do something. I've got to think about this later so that I can try to muster up my sincerity or pray the right prayer or make my commitment real. This, and this has nothing to do with me trying, the preacher trying to press you for a decision this morning. What I'm saying is don't, 
Don't add one little thing to Jesus. Don't do it. Don't add one little thing to this free gospel. Even your sincerity, even your sorrow for sin, even your commitment. Because the moment you do, you rip right through the heart of the greatest love story ever told. Listen, the moment you do, you've made grace conditioned on Jesus plus. And it could be plus whatever in your life. And you've killed grace. You've obliterated the gospel the moment you do that. So let me encourage you what to do and what to do. And by the way, this is for also for you who have been Christians for years and years. My encouragement to you is this. Do nothing. Don't take one more step. Simply receive this good news as good news. Jesus has done everything for you. He left nothing undone. He doesn't ask you to do one little thing to receive this good news. Just believe it. Just believe it. I'm going to skip this long quote I have from Martin Luther, but there's this beautiful place where he encourages you to pay attention to the pronouns of Scripture. Like chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus gave himself for our salvation. Believe, receive, and rest upon this. Not just that Jesus died for sins in general, but that he died for your sins, that he came for you, for yours and mine. That's the truth that needs to be worked deeply into your heart. And when it is, you will possess and you will find the experience of true freedom in this gospel. Okay, last thing here. I took too long on the second point, so I'm I'm, going to go pretty quickly through this last point. Gospel freedom partnership. Here's what I'm saying. The result of gospel freedom agreement in Jesus alone, was a partnership in the gospel, in gospel freedom. If you look at verses 7 through 9, you'll see that Peter, he was entrusted with the same gospel to the circumcised or the Jews that Paul was entrusted with to the Gentiles. And I want you to note this, that it is one gospel, right? One gospel, but they saw that it needed different strategies and it needed different emphases based on the people who would be hearing this good news, This is going to be such a brief application, but here's my application. Go look at a map. Go look at a map, seriously. Because 90% of Muslims live in one part of the world, the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in one part of the world, East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India. But 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% of Christians live in Central and South America. 22% of Christians live in Africa. 15% and growing very rapidly live in Asia. 12 to 15% live in America. This is the only major religion that is effectively spread out across cultures. It's the least culturally imperialistic, and it's the most culturally flexible. Why? Because Christianity doesn't have clean laws anymore. It doesn't have ceremonial laws anymore. You can be an African Christian or a Chinese Christian or an Indian Christian or an American Christian. It can be that culturally flexible because it proclaims salvation and identity through Jesus and through Jesus alone with nothing added to him. There's a lot more we can say about it, but I I do want to end on this. I want you to see in this passage that partnership in the gospel involves caring for the poor. This is verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And it's like, what? where did that come from? With this whole like thing about this debate over circumcision. And then that gets tacked on. I'm going to spare you the history lesson here. But no other religion 
comes close to doing what Christianity has done for the poor, the sick, the disenfranchised, the widow, the orphans throughout the world. Not even close. If you've been around Grace Community Church for a little while, you know that I quote too much from uh, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. Um, And I think it's because I love how they communicated the paradoxes of Christianity. You know, a paradox is when two things seem to be opposite and self-contradictory, but they're actually true together. Chesterton wrote that Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious, furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of Christianity. You can't come to Jesus unless you have nothing. And that's something very few of us have. But if you come with nothing, but simply with the outstretched, empty, poor hand of a beggar, if you come like that, no righteousness in your hand, you couldn't possibly be richer. You couldn't possibly be more wealthy. Listen, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, of all people, Christians ought to be able to relate to the poor, the disenfranchised, the broken, and the hopeless. There should be a gravitational pull in our lives towards the poor and the suffering. Of all people, we should be holding hands with the poor, embracing the hurting, and showing grace to the disenfranchised. But it's it's not just that we should be able to relate, but in gospel freedom, We find real resources to be able to draw close to the poor and live sacrificially with the poor. Why? Because the truth of the gospel says to you, you are far more broken and sinful and fallen and poor than you could possibly imagine. But you are also more loved and more secure and more accepted and more approved of than you could have ever dared dream possible. The gospel sets you free, truly free. So that you can actually serve others, not to get anything from them, but just to serve them. You'll hear more about this next week, but we have an outreach to Cordova Elementary School that we've been announcing every Sunday morning for like four months, I think. You know, if you don't know, Cordova Elementary School is a school with an incredibly high percentage of students who fall below the poverty line. They aren't there for us. We are here for them. The gospel should be pushing you towards them. Listen, we're there to hold their hands and to embrace them. Whether that's reading a book on Monday afternoons with them. Or whether it's bringing supplies for their classrooms like we announced this morning. Listen, you know, I know that some of you, you hear this stuff about gospel freedom, Jesus and Jesus alone, and you begin thinking... You know, but aren't we supposed to live differently? Of course. And there's a hint of it in this last verse of this passage, right? Paul is going there, and he's going there more in the book of Galatians. But we will not truly live differently until we see how freely and deeply we already are loved in Jesus. And I'm telling you, when you grasp that personally in your life, and you use the personal pronouns in your life, you better look out because it is going to create deep and radical transformation and it will create a whole new trajectory right in the very center of your life, which is where Paul is heading. Listen, free at last 
free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess before you that when we hear this gospel of freedom, there is something in us that rises up from the very core of our beings because we are all deeply addicted to our own righteousness. And we think it's got to be too good. It's too good to be true. Father, Paul himself went to Jerusalem in order that he would fight for the truth of the gospel. And Father, we pray that the truth of the gospel would, that it would find fertile soil in our hearts to land this morning, and that it would bear fruit in keeping with the freedom that we have in Jesus. Father, help us to be on guard against gospel freedom opposition. Help us together as brothers and sisters in Jesus to agree in gospel freedom, in Jesus and in Him alone. And Father, we pray that You would build within us a great partnership in gospel freedom, that we would be a church that is known deeply for caring for the poor and the broken and the disenfranchised because we see that You cared for us when we were broken and poor and disenfranchised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.